bow your heads. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we hear in our minds the cries going up from this blood-soaked globe. Sometimes the news focuses us on it more than others. Nation invading nation has been going on since the dawn of time. Humans live, humans die, some in painlessness, some in agony. We are here to worship our king, the, the only one who's conquered death. The death beater lives, and he lives in us, and he's with us, and he is our hope. Lord Jesus, I want to pray right now for your church around the globe. Just want to pray for the Russian church. Anyone who speaks the truth goes to jail. And I pray that they would not be afraid. Lord, massive suffering is coming to Russia. And there are millions of Christians there. Our family. And I pray that they would speak out in truth. And that they would be bold to proclaim Jesus. On the streets and in the prisons where they go. And I pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. Most of whom we do not know. That they would overcome evil with good. That they would run into the situations of need and crisis. They would run towards suffering when they can to lift burdens and to help with the hope of Christ in intangible ways more numerous than we can count. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would be sobered by this. This world in its present form, as we are about to see, is passing away. Help our hearts not to become too tethered to this earth and we lose sight of what is eternal and what really matters. Risen Christ, I ask that by your spirit you would be with us now as we look to your word. I pray that you would help me to speak clearly and I pray that you would stir our hearts with love for Christ who is our only hope in the face of life and death and the suffering around us. Help us turn to him now in Jesus' name.
If you would, please open in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to be working this morning through a big chunk of 1 Corinthians 7 together. What I'm going to do is start where we left off last week in verse 7, with Paul's final words there. And we'll read verses 7 to 9. Then I am actually going to skip all the way up to verse 25, because in the verses in between, Paul talks about several topics that we're going to cover in the next couple weeks. And we'll just stay on the main topic that he's dealing with in these verses, and that's the topic of singleness. We don't have time to cover everything, even today, in these verses. So what I'm going to do is do something. I've done this before when we cover large chunks, and I, I, so I don't always preach this way. But what I'm going to do, because of the, the huge amount of stuff that's in these verses, I'm just going to read through the verses and make a few comments, interpretive comments, as we go. So I'm just going to read, pause, read, pause, read, pause, okay? So if you have your Bibles open, that'll really help you um, as I'm reading and pausing, reading and pausing. And then at the when I'm done with that, after 10, 15 minutes of that, we'll circle back and hit three highlights that we've seen, okay, from these verses. So we'll dive right in. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul says, I wish that all of you... Were as I am. In other words, single, like Paul, not married. Though he may have been married at one point, most rabbis were. And Paul is a converted rabbi. Paul says, But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. So Paul here views the status of being single and the status of being married. As a gift, both gifts from God. Not This is not a natural ability in the sense of I'm talented at being single or married. I'm, I'm gifted, like wow, he's a really gifted musician. He's a really gifted single person. No, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Gift in the sense of it's given as a vocation, a calling to be single or to be married. Verse 8, Paul says, Now to the unmarried and to the widows, I say, so he's addressing people like him in the church, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So Paul's going to circle around to this in a bit. His, his basic principle that he's sharing with the church, especially in light of a big crisis that this church is going through, a famine, we'll talk about that in a minute, his main principle is that, especially in light of all this craziness that's going on, if you're not married, you should stay not married. And if you're engaged to be married, betrothed, you should wait to be married. Paul's exception to this, he makes a qualification, is if you are struggling with self-control over your sexual desires, then in that case, 
it would be wise if you have the ability, if you have the opportunity to channel those desires into a God-approved marriage to another Christian. Someone who is, at the end of the verse, verse 39 and 40, we'll see someone who is in the Lord, not an unbeliever that will only lead your heart away from the God who rescued you. Verse 25, he skips ahead. Let's skip ahead now. Where he starts again. So he takes a long detour, talking about a lot of things we'll cover in the next week. Marriage and divorce, things like that. Now he circles around and says, now to the virgins, this would be the unmarried, I have no command from the Lord. In other words, Jesus and all his teachings never addressed this specific thing in his personal ministry. But, so Paul's not going off something Jesus said, but he says, I give a judgment. As one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. In other words, Paul is weighing in here as one of the Lord's trustworthy apostles with wisdom that comes from Jesus. Verse 26. This is a key verse. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Verse 26 is huge for how we understand everything going on in chapter 7 here. Paul is offering wisdom in light of current events in Corinth. A crisis which isn't described in the letter. Why? Because the Corinthians are living in this crisis. They know what the crisis is. We don't. Many scholars who read literature of the day that we have available to us think that the crisis was a huge famine. No food. A lack of grain. And when there's no food, it affects everything in society. Cost of living, all of that. So Paul is saying that in light of current events, it is good for unmarried Christians to remain unmarried. In verse 27 he goes on, he says to the people that are engaged, are you pledged to a woman? Engaged? Don't seek to be released. Don't break off the engagement. In those days, that would have been almost equivalent of a divorce. But Paul goes on, are you free from a commitment? So you're not engaged? Don't look for a wife. So he says, if you're engaged, don't break off the engagement. But if you're not engaged, don't seek to be engaged. Verse 28. But, here we see his, he's operating in the realm of wisdom, not moral absolutes here. So he's not laying down, this is the law from Jesus. He's, he's, he's speaking wisdom here. He says, verse 28. If you do marry... You have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So there are many things, guys, in the Christian life that might not be morally wrong. What house to buy, what clothes to wear, what car to drive. I mean, we could say hundreds and hundreds of things that there's no moral black and white. They are wisdom area. They might not be wise. Paul goes on to explain what he means. He says, but those, why would it might be wise, not be wise to marry in this time of crisis? Those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Now in verses 29 to 31, Paul is going to offer a further explanation for what he says. For Paul, we are all living in the last days, the end of days. Jesus is coming soon. So any trouble, any crisis, like a famine, like a war, 
that we as Christians face in this life is only the beginning, a taste of the trouble that's coming on the world at the end. Therefore, we must prepare our minds and hearts for suffering. Every crisis we experience now is a reminder this world is not all there is. The end is coming. The new creation is yet to come. We're not home yet. How do you prepare your heart for suffering, especially in crisis? Verse 29, Paul says this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Jesus could come. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn, as if they did not. Those who are happy, as if they were not. And those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. And those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, here's his reason. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. The world is passing away. The time is short, says Paul. This is end of the world language. And Paul is giving Christians some wisdom here for how we all should live in light of the end, not just in crisis. First, he says, those who have wives should live as if they do not. What are you saying, Paul? Did you forget what you wrote in verses 1 to 6 about the need for husbands to remember their wives and be intimate with them and vice versa? How can you say live like you have no wife? Did you go to sleep between verses 1 and 7 and now and forget what you wrote? I don't think Paul's crazy. What does he mean? What's going on? Let's keep Seeing what he says. He says, if you're mourn, if you mourn and you're sad and you're weeping, live like you're not sad. If you're happy, live as if you're someone who's not happy. If you buy something, don't act like you can keep it. Hold it with open hands. When you use the stuff of this world, I like the way the NIV translation says, don't get engrossed in it. Don't let your heart get obsessed and caught up with stuff. And I need that one. Myself. Why? Because, he says, this world in its present form is passing away. If you have a marriage, it's passing away. If you have happiness in this life, it's passing away. If you have sadness in this life, it's passing away. If you have possessions in this life, it's passing away. The world is passing away. You can keep nothing in this world. Nothing. No job, no possession, not even your life can you keep. So hold it with open hands. Paul's saying, don't, if you're married, don't live your life like your husband or your wife is your life, is of ultimate importance, because we're all dying. Keep your marriage in its proper place. Don't center your life around your spouse. They are not God. And when you are sad about things in this world, remember the sad things are passing away. It doesn't mean don't be sad. Paul gets sad. He says we're sorrowful yet always rejoicing. 
Here he's just saying, don't let your heart get so caught up in sadness because of the terrible things happening in Ukraine that it becomes such an effect, the world has such an effect, the sadness of the world has such an effect on you that you forget the new creation coming and the hope that we're living for and the beauty of a sunrise and the good that is in the world. And when you are happy, deliriously happy, giddy excited about something, remember Everything in this life we're excited about is going to pass away. It's only a taste of what's coming. Let it be a springboard, a diving board into a deeper joy. Everything good we taste, every sweet relationship now is only a taste of what will be when the new creation comes. Every pleasure we have physically is only a taste of what's coming in the future, in, in America, in a country, in the West like ours, we are drowning in tastes of good gifts. Let us not allow our hearts to be too tethered to those things. Now, what Paul is saying here is that there's nothing like a good crisis. There's nothing like a good crisis to remind everyone that nothing in life is certain. I want you to think about the people in Ukraine right now. 14 days ago, we're on day 11 now. 14 days ago, they had not dreamed what this that this would happen. Some of that, their own president, I don't blame him for this, Vladimir Zelensky, he was saying they're not going to attack, they're not going to attack, even though everyone in the West was saying, yeah, they're going to attack. Why? Because he didn't want panic to sue and all his people to flee, but they were getting wrecked. Behind the scenes. I think we knew what was going to come. But the point there is, they did not imagine, four million people didn't imagine that they were going to be trying to leave their homes, maybe never to return again. Nothing is certain. If this, world, if this war turns nuclear 14 days from now, you and I could be living in a crisis, and I'm not saying this to scare you. This is true. Right? It's reality. We could be living in a crisis we had never dreamed of 14 days from now. I want you to just think about COVID two years ago. Whatever you think about COVID, life changed in one week. This modern world, for all its perks and technology, is not a secure home. Guard your hearts, friends, and I'm preaching to myself too, from getting so entangled in the things of earth that you become emotionally and spiritually crippled when those things pass away, because they will. And guard your hearts. Let's guard our hearts together from a constant restlessness in our hearts to find more and more in this world to satisfy us. I need a better house, a better job, a better location to live, a better car, better, better earthly stuff. It can be gone like that. Stig, Carl had a great reminder of this in their own life, right? You just bought a new vehicle and then hit a deer with the other vehicle. You know, it's like stuff can come and go like that. 
Carl didn't steer into the deer. The deer steered into him. <laughs> became a hunter. He became a hunter overnight. You should have been at the banquet. We could have given you tips how to do it better. <laughs> yeah, but I think that deer has fed the coyotes. All right, so verse 32, Paul returns more specifically to the topic of getting married in light of the current crisis. He says, verse 32, I would like you to be freed from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man, of course you'd insert woman here too, is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but so that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. See how this is a wisdom issue here? But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she misses. She she miss, she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Alright, so after this big flyover, which I hope wasn't too dizzying for you, going through all those verses. Um, let's circle back through, and we're going to see three things about singleness from these verses. First, in the age of Jesus, singleness is not a curse. In fact, in the first thousand years or so of Christianity, there was a huge push towards elevating singleness as the highest vocation that a Christian could choose. A calling one could take up as a follower of Jesus as a way to radically devote your life to the Lord and to his service. For example, think of all the Christians who joined monasteries or who devoted themselves to radical missionary endeavors because they were single and they did not have families to care for. Missionaries like, for example, Jesus. Or the Apostle Paul. Jesus himself taught about singleness in Matthew 19, verses 11 to 12. If you would like, you can flip there. Matthew 19, verses 11 to 12. Some of what Paul says about the gift of singleness comes from Jesus' language here. In this passage, what's happening is, and we're going to tackle this passage a little bit next week when we talk about divorce and remarriage and that topic. But the disciples in the context make a comment to Jesus right after he teaches about divorce. They, they basically say that, Jesus, if you're really glued to your wife and you can't just divorce her for any reason, like she burns the toast and you're not happy or you see somebody prettier, and you can't just divorce her for any and every reason, uh, it would be better to be single and not be married at all if you're really stuck like that. 
And Jesus responds to them, not everyone can accept this word, verse 11. And in context, the word is the statement the disciples just made. It's better to not marry. And Jesus says, whoa, 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 guys. Not everyone can accept that, but only those to whom it has been given. And Jesus goes on, verse 12, for there are eunuchs who are born that way. In other words, born with anatomy that doesn't work. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, men who were castrated. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. That's the NIV's translation. Um, other translations, literally, it's those who eunuch themselves for the kingdom. There was an ancient Christian guy named Origen. Uh, you may have heard his name. He took that very literally, and he eunuched himself for the kingdom. Um, that is not what Jesus is talking about, I don't think. Uh, Jesus doesn't call us to maim ourselves. This is the NIV's translation. I think it's the spirit here. Choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can, Jesus says, the one who can accept or receive this should receive it. This is where the Apostle Paul gets the language he uses in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. from. Paul there calls singleness a gift. What is a gift? A gift is something you receive from someone else. Jesus himself said that if you are able to receive that gift, it was a good gift to embrace. It doesn't mean that it doesn't come with great challenges. It also doesn't mean that this, this super natural ability or this superpower to not have any sexual desire anymore and so you're single jesus and paul are talking about receiving the vocation of singleness as a gift and a way to devote oneself to christ and to his kingdom now what i want you to know is that this concept here in the new testament is actually a huge shift in thinking for Jesus' hearers and for Paul's hearers in Corinth. In the very beginning of the Bible story, for example, in Genesis 1, verse 28, God blessed the first human, Adam and Eve, and commanded them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And all throughout the Bible then, bearing children, lots of children, was considered a great blessing and an obligation even and a calling for humans. Barrenness and childlessness were considered a great tragedy, both in Judaism and in Corinth and the Roman world. And yet, with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was a great shift in emphasis. This shift does not erase what came before. It doesn't mean that children are no longer a blessing. It doesn't mean that having children is not a natural, normal, good, and right, and God-designed outcome for any healthy marriage. That coming together should produce outward love for others, most directly children that we bring forth. But what the shift in emphasis means is that the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with images of God, with more humans, is no longer a mandate for God's people to have as many 
image bearers as possible biologically. This call is now fulfilled in the New Testament and through Jesus by the call for Christians to go forth and make disciples who, by the power of the Spirit, fill the earth with the image of the last Adam, Jesus Christ, as billions of people are saved and conformed to his image by the Spirit of God. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself. I am just, if you say, prove it from the Bible, I just have a little bit of time here. So, let's look at a few things. First, on a theological level, in Genesis, we see that Adam and his bride Eve, bride Eve, Adam and Eve, right, they're commanded by God, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth with image bearers of God. Now, who is Jesus? He is the last Adam. And who is Jesus' bride? The church, us. And we are called by the power of Jesus to be fruitful and multiply and fold the earth with the fruit-bearing seed, not biological seed, but the word of the gospel about Jesus so that the earth will be filled with sons and daughters of God who trust in Jesus. Here's a few places where we see this. Isaiah 53. Man, we could do a lot in Isaiah about the eunuch supposed to rejoice in the new covenant with, when Jesus comes. The eunuch should rejoice because he's not a dry tree. He's going to have spiritual children. Um, rejoice, O barren woman who didn't bear. Why? Because the Messiah has come. All right. Those are some things in Isaiah. But specifically Isaiah 53, the prophet says about Jesus, verse 10. Isaiah 53, 10. Though the Lord, though Yahweh makes his, ultimately it's Jesus' life and offering for sin, the Lord, he, the Lord, will see his offspring, kids, he'll see the kids of the Messiah, and he'll prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. In other words, what Isaiah is saying here is that the killed Messiah is not going to stay dead. This suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is not going to stay dead. God will prolong his days. He'll have offspring and prolonged days. He'll be resurrected and have kids. But here's the thing. Jesus did not have biological kids, did he? Who are his offspring? And as the Bible story progresses, we learn that it's spiritual family. You see, when the word about Jesus goes forth and someone becomes a Christian, they join the spiritual family of Jesus. And whoever spoke the word first, the word about Jesus first to that person, becomes a spiritual parent who sowed a seed. The seed is God's word. And what does good seed do? It bears fruit. Just like human seed when planted in the right place, brings forth children. These are metaphors for spiritual realities. Okay? A tree bears good fruit. The word is like seed that when planted in a human heart, bears fruit, gospel fruit. And so whoever speaks the word becomes a parent. Paul, the single apostle who had no biological children, calls one of his converts, Timothy, his true child and son in the faith. 1 Timothy 1, verse 2. 
Back in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 15, the apostle tells the Corinthians, I became your father through the gospel. That's in this book, 1 Corinthians 4, 15. This is the way Paul thought. The gospel, the word, the seed of the word of God, produces spiritual children. And those who share it and spread it, and even if you're not the first one, if you help people grow in it in some way, just being a good example to them, showing them the love of Christ, showing them that the word has an effect on you, if you are a part of that, that is a part of the spiritual parenting process. Paul, in fact, in Colossians, we, when we preached through Colossians, we hit this hard. Paul uses the same language about from Genesis 1, verse 28, about being fruitful and multiply, and he applies it to what the gospel is doing all throughout the earth. Okay? So remember, Genesis 1, 28, Adam and Eve are charged to do what? Be fruitful and multiply, which means have lots and lots and lots of kids. And fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the earth. Take care of the world. Tame the dinosaurs. Whatever. So this, this is the command that they are given. And in Colossians chapter 1 verse 6, Paul says that the gospel, the word about Jesus, is literally being fruitful and multiplying. Now, your different translations might not draw that out, because a lot of folks don't see that connection. That's okay. Bearing fruit and growing, it might say different things. Literally, if you wanted to make sure people see the hyperlink to Genesis 1.28, you can translate it with the same. It's the same words in the Greek Old Testament translation as it is in the New Testament. Paul wants us to see the connection. The gospel is doing, the seed of the gospel is doing what Adam's seed should have done, right? Be fruitful, multiply, and reproduce the true image of God throughout all of creation. Fill it. Fill creation with followers of the last Adam and his descendants. So, now that Jesus has come, the command to Adam and Eve is fulfilled, not through biological reproduction, how many children walk away from Jesus out of Christian homes? Having kids is not the way to make disciples. Though we are commanded to disciple our kids. Does that, does that make sense? It's, it's very different in the New Covenant. When an Israelite was born, they were born into the covenant community. They were a part of Israel, biologically. When a Christian is born, they are not born biologically, they are born again. Big difference. And one of the reasons we don't baptize babies, but that's another story for another day. My Presbyterian friends would be throwing things at me right now. Alright. So, there is a huge shift. Now, fill the earth and subdue it is transformed into the lords of the last Adam. He raises his hands and says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Go, make learners of me, disciples, in all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and even I am with you always to the end of the age. So, what this means is that marriage is not the highest calling that a single Christian can choose. No. Bearing fruit in your life and growing in Jesus and seeking to help others grow in Jesus is the highest calling of every Christian. 
no matter what their vocation is in life. Now, let's look at the next takeaway, what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7. Second, in times of great crisis, so first thing was, in the age of Jesus, in the age of Jesus, singleness, barrenness is not a curse. In the times of great crisis, singleness is wise. Remember how I said that this present crisis Paul mentioned in verse 26 is driving a lot of his advice here to the Corinthians? Paul believes that in a crisis, it is ideal to put marriage on hold, even if you're engaged. Unless you're like really struggling with temptation, then it's better to marry than to burn. But the idea is self-control and waiting. And no matter what, he says, you don't sin if you marry. But, verse 28, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Remember, Paul is speaking here in the days before birth control. Marriage meant more mouths to feed. Period. A famine that meant inviting suffering into your life. It also meant a divided focus in a time that called for radical focus on the Lord and on helping people. So here's a perfect example. You know, if some of you follow the news, you may have seen the story that the media has picked up about this young couple in Ukraine that got married, then picked up guns to go fight the Russians. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's nothing, Paul would say there's nothing wrong with that. I don't know if they're Christians or not, but I think if they were Christians and the Apostle Paul was writing to them, I, I think he would have told them, it's better to wait. Wait to get married and become a family because of the present crisis so that you can focus individually on meeting needs around you without distraction. The suffering going on in Ukraine is horrible. And it's the hardest right now for those with families. It's hard for everybody. It's the hardest for those with families. Husbands and wives are being ripped apart, potentially never to see each other again. Hearts are divided. Stay and fight or get your loved ones to safety. This example here is a physical conflict, but the same truth applies in context where following Jesus comes at the high risk that you could be killed. It's harder for a father of six to be bold preaching about Jesus and standing up for truth in Moscow, Russia right now than it is for a single man or woman. Why is that? Because this father, father knows he's going to go to jail, maybe for 15 years. He might disappear. The Russians are very good at making people disappear. And so who will feed for his kids? Who will care for his wife? So the pressure to be quiet is enormous. No, crisis and times of great persecution are not the wisest times for entering into a marriage. It's better to wait. That's what Paul's saying. It's a great famine. Paul some, he says something even further, though. As he's reflecting on this, he knows every time we face crisis, it's only a taste of the end that's coming. It's a reminder that this life is transient, that this world is passing away, 
that we can't cling too tightly to anything in this life. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, he says the third thing, in light of Jesus' return, singleness can be very strategic. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul does not just have the present crisis in view. Right? He uses this present crisis in verse 26 as a launch pad to talking about the fact that nothing in this world is ultimately secure. It's all fading away. Look at verses 29 to 31 again. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Now, I explained those verses to you a little bit ago on our big fly-through. Obviously, Paul didn't mean if you're married, you should ignore the fact that you have a wife. Husbands are to love their wives. However, we ought not treat our husbands, our wives, our, our, our children, our homes, our possessions, or even our earthly joys and sorrows as if they are all there is to life. The time is short. Jesus is going to return, and as Paul says in Colossians, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. This world can take your physical life, right? Your breath can go out of you, but Jesus Christ, if he has given you life, what can mortals do to me? Amazing God. This world will not lurch on and on forever, staggering between peace and crisis like a drunk, a drunk man. This present world is passing away. A new creation is coming. No matter what stage of life we are in, no matter if we're happy or sad, married or unmarried, have hands that are empty or hands that are full of the possessions of life, this life is not all there is. There is more to life than this. And Paul wants to commend to all Christians throughout all ages a way of life that he views as strategic for living sold out for the next life. And that way of life is the way of Jesus, it's the way of Paul, and many of the apostles and countless millions of Jesus followers over the past 2,000 years. It is the way of singleness. To be married, crisis or no, is to introduce a level of earthly distraction into your life in the form of a good and sometimes very challenging gift. A distraction that's not morally wrong. In fact, marriage is a good, God-approved calling in and of itself, right? But it can make someone's ability to be totally focused on kingdom advance around the world much more difficult. Nobody knows this better than missionaries who have served on the front lines of gospel advance as singles and then gotten married. It brings great joys to cute little kids, but also huge challenges. Huge challenges. And things have to change. This is why Paul says what he does in verses 32 to 35. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. 
An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of the world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. And now, he says, let's look at the last couple verses, verse 39 to 40. He says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. He must be a believer. In my judgment, she is happier. I think blessed is probably a better translation here. She's blessed if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So here the apostle who has the spirit is weighing in on the situation in front of him in Corinth and he's encouraging God's people to strongly consider remaining unmarried at least until the time of crisis has passed away. But he also wants them to remember in the time of crisis that whether they're married or not, the entire world is passing away. And he wants them to remember that singleness is a gift if received from God as a calling with the help of the Spirit. And it can lead, with God's help, and the help of the Spirit of Jesus, to a heightened level of focus on others, and on kingdom advance, and a service to the church that's impossible for someone who's married. In fact, one great tragedy of church history that occurs over and over and over again is found in the story of great saints who devoted themselves so exclusively to the Lord and to the service of the Lord that their families grew to hate them and even the Lord. Their, their Christian families. David Livingston being an example. He's a missionary in Africa. Just practically abandoned his wife and his second. So in conclusion, in the age of Jesus, the last Adam, singleness can be viewed as a gift, not a curse. To be single is not to miss out on God's best for this life. In times of great crisis and social upheaval, which we may very well be heading into, that's not fear-mongering, it is normal for the world to be in chaos. What we've experienced in America for the last few hundred years has been a little blip in the normal. You read her history, right? You know these things. I mean, we only had a world war, what, 50, you know, 80 years ago, 70 years ago? Choosing to remain single is an especially wise choice in times of great crisis. And finally, in light of the fact that the world is passing away and that Jesus could return at any time, singleness ought to be viewed as a gift to receive and embrace Ultimately, for the sake of living as focused on the Lord as you can. Now, there's many things that make the apostles' words hard to hear back then and in our day and age. Our culture idolizes the idea of finding your soulmate and settling down to a dream life together with dream jobs in your dream home, with a comfortable retirement and nice family vacations and successful children and cute grandkids and finally a peaceful, painless death. 
It's a vision of life that's profoundly out of sync with the lived reality of the vast majority of Christians worldwide, both now and for the past 2,000 years. And in 14 days, it could be completely different. We don't know. None of us knows. Jesus knows. There's nothing morally wrong with all those dreams and things I just mentioned. They're gifts from God. Good things. But they're not the norm. This present world is passing away. And the single person is not a second-class citizen in God's kingdom. They are a central part of the family of Jesus. Sadly, in the evangelical American church world and Western church, the church world that I'd say most of us are familiar with, a passionate focus-on-the-family mentality has elevated family discipleship and family programs and quality family time so high that I think singles can sometimes feel like they're on the outside looking in, like something's wrong with me. I don't belong. My needs and my hurts and my longings aren't important. Now hear me, I am passionate about family discipleship in the home. I try to love my family, to focus on my family. The, the Christian ministry called Focus on the Family has helped people love their families better. But I want to tell you here about Jesus' great Focus on the Family moment in his ministry. What does it look like for Jesus to focus on the family? Well, the single Jesus was approached by his biological family in Mark's Gospel. His mom his brothers, okay? And they come asking for him to come outside of the house where he's teaching and talking to people, and they, they want him to talk with them. Basically, they're there to take him away because they think he's crazy. But his family thinks he's nuts. And in Mark 3, 33 to 35, Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in his circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus was single. Jesus was unmarried. Jesus had no children. And Jesus wasn't even close to his biological family during his ministry. They thought he was nuts. Jesus' family was a ragtag band of followers from all walks of life who had very little in common. He didn't fit like a tax collector and a zealot and a fisherman, somebody who works for Rome and somebody who kills Romans and somebody who catches fish and probably doesn't read. All right? And they, you know, what did they talk about when they were together? Well, we have nothing in common. Jesus who said, follow me. And because they all fit with Jesus, because he was their friend, they fit together. This was the family that Jesus gave his all for. And the one who had no children said, let the children come to me. And don't hinder them. That's precious. That's our Savior, Jesus. Our single, 
totally devoted to the Father King. Friends, my prayer for you, whichever gift is yours at the moment, whatever your longings, whatever your hopes, whatever your dreams, my prayer for you and for myself is that your heart would be attracted to Jesus. So stirred, so attracted to this man, to our Savior, to the God-man Jesus Christ, that he becomes for you your source of life. So that no matter what you have to go without on this earth, You could say, I have a life. It's Jesus. And I have a family. It's his. Even though they're weird sometimes and they can be mean and hurt each other. Look what they did to Jesus. Right? And my prayer for you, if your hands you feel are full of the gifts of earth, is that you would hold it loosely with gratitude as a pointer toward that which is truly life. Let's pray. Lord, this is a weighty topic, a painful topic for some. Lord, please forgive us as a church and the evangelical church which we are Broadly a part of for years, I think, of perhaps making singles feel like second-class citizens. Like something's wrong. Lord, I just pray that we would be a family. A family of Jesus. That we would love each other like family. That you would work that in our hearts. That we would see our biological families as gifts to the church, to the church family. The biological family exists to serve the eternal family, not to live independent of it. It is a picture. The best biological families, where we know, are pictures, albeit imperfect, of what life under a good father should look like. Help us, Lord. Body that. Thank you for your love for us. Be with our hearts now as we sing, take from your table and sing to you. In Jesus' name.